would read each morning with some extra sacramental characteristics. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces who were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, might we be good hearers of your word, Lord. Lord, hearers that receive the word, that that word would find good soil, Lord, take root, grow in us. Lord, might we just that good active listener this morning, ready to receive the truth of your word, to be instructed, to be encouraged, to be challenged by it. Lord, we thank you that your word never returns void. Lord, help us not to be hard you, Pastor Adam, as he proclaims it, Lord, that we be led by your Spirit, and that he proclaim uh, the Word with authority to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Interestingly enough, as we're going to speak of providence, this morning for a few moments from the book of Esther as we think of how God is at work within the book and the history of his people in his providential power. We are now beginning our study in the book of Esther. And if you recall, as we spoke last week, how it's a liturgical document, that it is, as it finds its place in the history of the Jewish individuals, it is read at the Festival of Purim. And we are actually in by calendar in Purim right now, from the middle of February to the middle of March, the Jewish Purim. And so it's providential. We also are studying the book of Esther. I don't know if any of you saw in the media, I just happened to catch a a, a little segment in the uh, world news, not the logo, the world news, of the Ukrainian, uh, some individuals dispersed from Ukraine, and there were Jewish individuals celebrating even in the midst of conflict, they were celebrating and observing the feast or festival of Pearl. And so this morning, as we begin our initial look into the book of Esther, it is important that we grasp that it is a story that will unfold for several weeks to us, page by page, as we see God's deliverance working on behalf of His people in the working of the power of His providence. We think of providence during this time, just as a historical notation to you, during this time, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we can think that's all that's occurring in human history. It is what's focused on in the reign of Ahasuerus for the Jewish people. But if we step back and realize that really wasn't the center of the entire focus of the earth at that time, in fact, it really wasn't much of interest to many outside of God's people. During that same century that Esther lived, Socrates was born, the great Athenian philosopher. During the same time period, the Olympic Games were already well established, nearly 200 years old. 
during this same period, as we think again about God's providence that is working around the world, the Chinese philosopher Confucius was born in the Far East. There are many things occurring, and all, and each and every one of them, are under the providence of God. By providence, as we study his hand at work in the life of his people through the story of Esther, by providence, when we say that God is working providentially, or we say, wow, that is this blessed providence, instead of saying, wow, aren't you lucky? Again, it's a colloquial way of simply saying something, wow, that was fortunate, but perhaps we're better off to discipline our minds to recognize the hand of God. And so by providence, we mean that God is working actively, always, to uphold, direct, and govern each individual, his or her actions, and all of the elements, from the greatest even to the least, by his immutable, most wise, and most holy word. I was teaching this a lesson from the Shorter Catechism on providence to the students of my theology course. They are ranging from, I think, uh, 10th grade to 12th grade. And I was speaking about how blessed it is that God does uphold all of our actions, from the greatest of them to the least of them, that He governs us, that He watches over, upholds, and directs us, each individual, all of our actions, and all of the elements which surround us. And then I left class, went out into the parking lot to go home, I had locked my keys in my car or in the bus. So then I left, and I was not too thankful at that moment for that providence where I had to sit and rest and realize, indeed, I had somewhere to be. And I had to contact Dan and let him know, I'm going to be late. I locked my car key in the car. So I sat for 30 minutes and pondered the problem. I was just teaching the teenagers to be thankful for. But indeed, it isn't always easy to receive pride. And this is evident and on display throughout the book of Esther. Now you notice the setting that was read for you so far in verses 1 and 2. And, and uh, again, I, I will say, I'm not going to preach every turn a phrase in the book of Esther would be the poorest way to go about it. But I do think that setting up the book, we should consider the providence situated for the people of God. Again, you'll notice what the providence is, and it begins at the very beginning of the book. Now, this is how you read the rest of the drama. This is how you understand the story. It took place when? In the days of Ahasuerus. That has, is full of meaning. Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, you know, over 127 provinces. This is the context for reading the rest of the story. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. Now, in order to better understand the providential setting, what does it mean that they were situated in the days of Ahasuerus? We need to sketch a brief timeline, some of which should probably 
familiar with, some aspects perhaps not, but consider with me that 40 years prior to the reign of Ahasuerus, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, unexpectedly issued a decree that the Jews could return from their captivity to the promised land. Turn with me, if you will, just back, just to see this decree. It's in the book of Esther. So you remember the, the chronology here, is, or the books are set in chronological order. You're looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. If you just turn back to Ezra, you'll see this decree that happened some 40 years prior to the events of the days of Ahasuerus. I read for you in Ezra chapter 1, the decree of Cyrus, wherein the Jews were allowed to return to the promised land. Beginning in verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You see, providence. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in which and wherever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings to the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Again, you see here in the decree 40 years prior to what we see here in Esther, which is the days of Ahasuerus, Cyrus the Great issues the decree for the Jews they return to the promised land. Now, 70 years before that period, before Cyrus issued that decree whereby the Jews might return to Jerusalem. Seventy years before that time, Israel had been taken out of the promised land and into captivity under the Babylonian Empire, which was led by King Nebuchadnezzar. You're familiar with this story and all of the events and some of these smaller stories that were extremely dramatic as recorded in the book of Daniel. You remember the story of Daniel, the lion's den. You think about during the reign or underneath or post-reign of Nebuchadnezzar in Israel's captivity in Babylon. But as you would consider the movement of God's providence throughout history, as he has decreed it and so governed it by choices that were made through the working of his powerful providence, the Babylonian Empire weakened over time. And eventually that Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians under the leadership of Cyrus. You remember the story, perhaps, if you were chronologically considering it, 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Here they are in the midst of captivity. And there is a feast. It's recorded in Daniel 5 and Daniel 6. And you remember, uh, perhaps in Sunday school or through your Bible reading, there's the feast event, and the uh, 
pen in the hand a few, and they begin to draw upon the wall. And they try to figure out well, what is the meaning of this. And then Daniel, who has risen from the ranks in this role of prominence, using his ability to interpret and prophesy and speak words of wisdom, um, he says, you know, the Babylonian Empire is going to fall. And if you look at the text, at the, I believe it's the end of chapter 5 leading into the beginning of chapter 6, within that time period and towards that very moment, the Babylonian Empire falls. Uh, Darius, who is just outside the city gate, getting ready to take over, and Babylon will fall. Under the direction of God's providential control, whereby He is working to uphold, direct, and govern each individual, his or her actions, and all of the elements, from the greatest of them even to the least, by His immutable and most holy and most wise will. Under that providential control, Cyrus allows the Jews to return to the promised land. The return of Cyrus, where he says, as we read for you in Ezra, the return of the Jews is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So then you're looking at Esther as it follows from Ezra, Nehemiah, and into Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah follow the story of the Jews coming back and what it was like as they then arrived back in Jerusalem while they were allowed to return under the decree of Cyrus. However, significant to the part of the story here in Esther, how does all of that history play into the story of Esther? As we would understand, Esther is taking place in the days of Ahasuerus. Well, the significance of that history for the book of Esther is the fact that not everyone go back and the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, cover the period of the return. But there's something happening where a minority, at least, is not returning. Rather, he's in captivity. Now again, the reason for not returning are various. If you look at Daniel himself, uh, he also did not return. But the night of the over when when uh, Persia overcame the Babylonians, they recognized very shortly thereafter, according to the narrative, it was immediate. They recognized Daniel was the man that was worthy to keep on, and they brought Daniel on to assist in the captivity. Uh, we'll take this guy over here to be on the administrative side of things. So Daniel seems to have stayed as well um, and then lived out his life as an older man uh, there uh, without returning. So the reasons for not returning when they were in a place of captivity and desirous to go back are perhaps at least threefold. I'll give you three reasons to consider. Why do we have this situation where a minority is living in this place in the days of Ahasuerus, where they're surrounded in the capital of Susa under the reign of the king of Persia. 
Well, three reasons why it was there. Why didn't everybody just immediately split and go right back to Jerusalem? That's at least three reasons. Number one, the east gate. You have to think of it as, sure, it's not your homeland, but at this point in time, over a period of years, it kind of becomes it. If you were to return, you think, to a broken and weary land, there's going to be significant hardship and toil awaiting you in the future. So, as you calculate, I have a quality of life here. Again, they're no different in that sense than many of us. I have a quality of life here at this point. I didn't wish to come here, but I have made somewhat a life for myself and my family. Uh, now, I need to return where I've been called and where I wish to dwell, but I also have what I have here. It'll be much harder, and the risk will be much higher. Maybe you'll get scared. There's an element of the ease living and not returning. Number two, you can think of cultural assimilation as another element wherein this story uh, takes place. Uh, Esther and Mordecai both seem to have Babylonian names. There's, a, there's an aspect of cultural assimilation. You're there for a season of time. You become a part of the cultural machinery. If you look over in chapter 2, you see this distinction that's noted for us in verse 7 of chapter 2 regarding Esther. Uh, we're speaking of Mordecai, and uh, again, it says he was carried away. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried him away. He was bringing up Hadassah. Jewish Babylonian names as well, and if you were reading the story of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, you see the same thing. He and his friends assigned, at some point, cultural assimilation to Babylonian names. Um, I'm just simply noting for you the adaptation of a Babylonian name, or to name your children Babylonian names, uh, it, it speaks in some measure of the cultural assimilation of Israel. Yes, you wish to return, but let's just face it, there's some risks whether it's the ease of living as they have uh, considered their life in the land if they were to return, the cultural assimilation, the professional success, not everyone wanted to go back to the plowed land. This, which is noted for you in the history, again, we might not know all this history right off hand. We're well removed from it, and if we haven't stayed fresh by our, our, our timeline throughout the Old Testament, you forget that this is the setting within which the book takes place. Which then, if we forget, we may not notice the prompting of the author to the reader. This is the question 
when it opens its gate to you as a leader. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, you know, Ahasuerus reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, and then you continue to read the rest of the story and its development, but about a minority that is there and didn't return. And then you find them in this extremely difficult situation wherein they are facing now an annihilation. The question that is prompted to you as the leader as you hear of the days of Hashuarius is this. Are the Jews who remain outside of God's promised land, are they still His covenant? Further, you think on this as you're reading the story and, and, and the decree that goes forward to annihilate the Jews, the men, the women, and the children, and to plunder all of their goods. Again, there is a decree whereby they could have left and gone to Jerusalem. And here they are in this setting, in the days of Ahasuerus. Further, as a reader, I'm asking myself, will those who remain outside of the land, will they receive His special care and His covenantal And so perhaps it is our second as we meditate on our own providence. We need to wrestle with the doctrine of providence. We need to receive of it. That from the one hand of that flows both good and bad. Wrestle with it significantly, yes, but receive of it by faith that this in my life is his even heart, immutable, multiplied, and mystery. Perhaps then, secondly, as we think of application beyond the doctrine of providence, is the issue of God's covenant care.
They had a more clear and affirming answer. How? The land was hard. The challenges were everywhere. How did they have a more clear sense? They lived without the provisions of the interbreeding cultural assimilation process. How then did they have such a clear and affirming answer that, indeed, they belonged to God? Well, the same way that you and I do. They were given the ministry of the Word by Nehemiah and Zechariah. Then they, they returned to a hard and desolate place, a very steep challenge. And you can read the book of Nehemiah and you know that the rebuilding of the wall, the immediate defense from their enemies and foes. It was not an easy task. So how were they so affirming and so sure that God be with them? The ministry of the man, leadership and government of God. The preaching of the word of the Lord that is seen in Christ. They were present. Again, the ministry of the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. You see, although it was very difficult, they were ministered to, just as you and I are, by the ordinary means of grace. They were strengthened in their weaknesses. They were lifted in their faith and hope to serve community as the people of God. If you will, look over, just so you can see a picture of it briefly, uh, to Nehemiah. It'll go right behind Esther. If you'll flip over, I wish you could see this in uh, Nehemiah. Turn to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8, we see indeed the ministry of the ordinary means of grace. The ministry of Esther. Chapter 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Remember, you're wondering, how were they so affirmed? How did they know that God be with them? And the drama of Esther is, will God be with us? What is the difference, the distinction of affirmation? The ministry of the ordinary means of grace. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to do what? To bring the law, the book of the law of Moses. And the Lord commanded, as the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Jump down to verse 9. Or, excuse me, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Again, it's the name of the Levites that helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in slavery, they read from the book, from the law of God. Nehemiah 